Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it's a conversation about breast cancer with Dr. Lyosh Pustai. Dr. Pustai is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Lyosh, maybe we can start off by talking a little bit about breast cancer yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, you know, many of us, especially now in October, are are talking about breast cancer. It's certainly a very common malignancy, but tell us a little bit about um, how common it is and, and how deadly it is. So I think it's most appropriate to start with the good news. So the good news for breast cancer patients is that uh, the survival rates have improved by 40 to 50 percent over the past 20 years. That is, 50% more patients survive breast cancer than 20 years ago. On average, about 85% of newly diagnosed breast cancer patients will never die from their disease, which we could paraphrase as being cured. The probability of survival, of course, vary by stage. And in stage one breast cancer, which is the most frequently diagnosed stage of breast cancer due to the broadly availability of, of mammographic screening, the survival rates are even higher and above 90%. In stage four or metastatic disease, survival still remains elusive, but patients live many years longer than they used to 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's certainly good news. And I, I think that um, women now more and more are beginning to realize that, you know, just getting breast cancer is not a death sentence. But I want to take one step back and talk a little bit about something that you mentioned, which is how uh, the survival rates have improved. And one of the things that has helped uh, in that is screening. Um, You know, in October, we're all talking about get your mammogram, get screened. Um, Many women... um, you know, it's so funny. They'll they'll come up to me and say, I get my mammogram every year and I got breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between um, screening or secondary prevention versus primary prevention? Yeah. So, of course, it's a shock for any individual to be diagnosed with cancer. But among cancers, breast cancer is, is actually one of the most highly treatable and curable diseases. And when a mammogram picks up cancer, it's actually a success of the mammographic screening story. So mammographic imaging is more sensitive than any self-examination or physical examination by a physician. And the goal is to really find cancer as early as possible because the cure rates are directly proportional to the size and stage of the disease. Yeah. And and I think that this is a big difference that we see here in the Western world as as opposed to the developing world where mammographic screening isn't um, as widespread and many of those patients um, present late. 
But I want to pick up on something else that you just mentioned, which is to say the staging. Now, historically, we always used to think about stage as being TNM. How big is the tumor? Has it gone to the lymph nodes? Has it spread outside of the breast and the lymph node area to distant sites? Recently, however, there has been incorporated into the staging system, at least in the prognostic staging system, this concept of grade and receptor status. Can you talk a little bit about what those phenomena are and how they affect prognosis and stage? Yes. So staging has historically been a composite of the size of the cancer and the number of lymph nodes or being lymph nodes involved at all. Um, defining the classical anatomical stage. So we learned that there are many additional features beyond just the size of the tumor that determine the prognosis and increasingly the sensitivity of the cancer to various therapies. And these molecular variables or markers can really influence the overall prognosis of an individual. So staging is now really refined by additional molecular variables in breast cancer, particularly grade and the estrogen receptor status. So low-grade cancers, even keeping the size the same, do better than, uh, than, than higher-grade tumors. And grade is a, is a pathological variable that, that sort of approximates how abnormal the cancer cells look. And the estrogen receptor status is also very important because we have highly effective estrogen-targeted therapies that improve survival in these patients. So even with a larger tumor, their outcome actually is similar to what a smaller tumor used to be uh, many years ago, which speaks to the efficiency of, of the, the novel therapies. Yeah. And just when we think about the landscape of all breast cancers, what proportion of breast cancers are hormone receptor positive? About 70% of all newly diagnosed breast cancers are hormone receptor or estrogen receptor positive. Um, This proportion does change though with age, and it's even larger in the population who are above 60, 65, and somewhat less in younger patients. So in other words, patients in their 50s and 40s uh, have a higher proportion of estrogen receptor negative breast cancers. And the epidemiology of breast cancer is such that um, age actually is a, a risk factor for developing breast cancer. So what's the average age at which women get breast cancer? So the average age is somewhere around between 60 and 65. So the majority of breast cancer patients are, are above 60. But which explains we see breast cancer in, in, in very young women, even their, their early 30s. Yeah. So I think two two important points there. One is that breast cancer is a phenomenon of, of aging. Um, and so women need to be aware of, of that as a risk factor. So many women ask me, you know, why did I get breast cancer? I eat right, I exercise. Um, and, and, you know, the two main risk factors are being a woman and getting older. Um, but as you say, Laos, you know, the other thing that's really important is that breast cancer can occur in in young women and and they need to be aware of that. Let's go there for a minute and talk about um, younger women getting breast cancer because certainly that's a shocking thing for many women. Some women are told that they're too young to get breast cancer and yet breast cancer seems to be more aggressive in the younger population. Can Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so the risk factors for breast cancer also depend and vary by the molecular type of the disease. So the risk factors that increase the probability that someone would develop an estrogen-positive breast cancer does include reproductive um, sort of variables, such as uh, um, having no children or having children late. Whereas for estrogen-receptor-negative disease, these very same factors actually seem to be protective. Um, another important risk factor is um, estrogen exposure. And again, this is a risk factor for developing estrogen receptor positive disease. And this has been clearly seen in the past when estrogen replacement therapy to treat for menopausal symptoms and with the hope that it would improve um, or reduce the risk of, of um, heart disease has been widely followed. Um, we saw an increase in estrogen receptor positive breast cancers. Um, other somewhat less important but still um, significant risk factors include obesity or being overweight, especially if someone is postmenopausal. Um, small amounts but regular alcohol intake also increases the risk for breast cancer of both types. Yeah, and I, I think the other the other risk factor, particularly for younger women, um, is genetics. Um, talk a little bit about knowing your family history and some of the genetic mutations that can put women at risk, especially at a younger age. Right. So the the other important risk factor is indeed genetics, or what sort of um, genes and. Uh, um, someone have inherited from their parents, and particularly what sort of variants in these genes are, are present in an individual through, through their uh, parental lineage. Um, there are genes which are associated with a, a very high risk of lifetime breast cancer. And the most uh, well-known is, of course, BRCA, or the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, which if they carry a mutation or an abnormality that someone has inherited, then the lifetime risk can be as high as 50 to 80% to develop breast cancer and other cancers, unfortunately, as well, such as ovarian cancer, or male patients remain at risk for um, prostate cancer or pancreatic cancer. And there are other uh, genetic causes of breast cancer that are much rarer than the BRCA gene mutations. And these include genes like P53, CHEK1, ATM mutations. Um, but even combined, the BRCA, the P53, the CHEK2, and other mutations um, only account for probably about 10% of early onset breast cancers. The remaining 90% of patients with an early onset breast cancer carry some other type of abnormality that they likely inherited, but we don't really know what they are. And they're very likely not a single gene, but multiple genes together that together increase the risk. But the good news is that that risk, though, is relatively small. It's nowhere close to this 50 to 80% risk of um, developing cancer during lifetime. So a strong family history in the absence of these um, detectable germline mutations still carries an increased risk, but that risk is more like 20-30% above the average risk for that would affect an individual who has no family history. Yeah. And the other interesting thing and, and something I think that many of our listeners may not know, and certainly many patients have told me is surprising to them, is that the vast majority of women who get breast cancer actually don't have a family history. You want to talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, that's correct. And this relates to the aging as being the, the most sort of significant risk factor for, for breast cancer, but also for many other cancers and, in fact, many other diseases. It's probably a consequence of simply the aging process that we accumulate damage in various cells throughout our body. And if this damage reaches a threshold, really through purely bad luck, then, then a cell sort of transitions into a, into a malignant or cancerous sort of phenotype and, and goes down the path of, of becoming cancer. Yeah. One other topic I want to kind of touch on before we leave this whole concept of genetics is um, ties into some of the subtypes that you were were talking about earlier. When we think about subtypes of, of breast cancer, oftentimes we talk about whether these are estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, um, or HER2 positive. So, so these three markers uh, help us to understand um, different types. And so are people who have a genetic predisposition, so for example, to BRCA1 or 2, are, are they more at risk of certain subtypes of uh, breast cancer than others? Yes. So the BRCA1 mutation increases the risk of uh, triple negative breast cancer more than it increases the risk for ER-positive disease. In other words, patients with a BRCA1 BRCA1 mutation are uh, more frequently have uh, estrogen receptor negative or estrogen and HER2 receptor negative, what we call triple negative disease. In the BRCA2 mutation, this proportion is closer to 50 50. Yeah. And, and so, so I. Go ahead. So just to give some additional background into this, um, to the to this receptor categorization. So one of the most important insights that we have made into the biology of breast cancer in the past twenty years is the recognition that the ER positive or estrogen receptor positive breast cancers are really fundamentally different from the triple negative or ER negative cancers. They arise from different cells in the breast. They have different risk factors, and they require different therapies. Yeah, I think that that's so. HER2 Sorry. is a third marker that that um, they routinely test for. So estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor define the hormone receptor status. And the HER2, which is an abbreviation for the human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 gene, so HER2, is a, th- a third variable that we always test on breast cancer cases because there are highly effective therapies for this particular molecular abnormality that about 10 to 15% of cancers carry. Right. And I, I think that that's so important to, to, to really understand that classification, um, which we are going to get into right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the treatment and diagnosis of breast cancer with my guest, Dr. Lajos Pustai. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine, developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking, and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies, 
The Battle II trial aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Lajosh Pustai. We're talking about the care of patients with breast cancer in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And right before the break, Lajosh, we were talking a little bit about these types of breast cancer, this classification based on receptors, the ER, the PR, the HER2 new. And you were telling us that, you know, these uh, these uh, make a big difference in terms of a patient's prognosis and their treatment. Um, so let's pick up our conversation there. Um, tell us a bit more about the risk factors for each of these different uh, types of, of cancer, how you think about them, and how that really dictates um, treatment. So the, the risk factors for ER-positive disease is uh, being overweight or obesity, uh, the postmenopausal um, state, also <clears throat> regular alcohol intake increases the risk a little bit. Also, um, Early men early menopause. I mean, early menarche or starting a regular periods at a young age and having a, um, a late menopause are also associated with increased risk, as well as late childbirth or or lack of pregnancy. So these reproductive um, variables or reproductive sort of factors don't seem to carry the same weight for ER negative disease. In ER negative cancers, actually, it, multiple early pregnancies seem to increase the risk and lack of uh, breastfeeding. That's so interesting. So with regards to therapy, though, there are really large differences in how we approach these two different types of breast cancers. Yeah. Tell us more about that. So in ER positive disease, one of the, the most important sort of um, weapons in our armamentarium is uh, anti-estrogen therapy. And this could include drugs which block the effect of estrogen and also drugs which could block the enzymes that make estrogen and lower the estrogen levels. So these are called aromatase inhibitors, and they are the mainstay of, of curative treatment for early-stage ER-positive disease. We used to um, uh, recommend as these drugs are taken for five years, but there is more and more data that suggests that going beyond five years and extended duration of this so-called adjuvant endocrine therapy to 10 years further improves the, the chance of cure and reduces the risk of a recurrence. Um, literally a few days ago, there was another major breakthrough announced in the news, and the results of the clinical trial will be presented shortly in a major European breast cancer meeting that adding an ad additional drug to, the, to this aromatase inhibitor class of agents um, could further improve the, um, the, the survival rate in early stage disease. And this additional type of drug is called a CDK4-6 inhibitor. These are drugs that we have been using for many years in the incurable sort of metastatic setting because they prolong the life of patients with, with the metastatic disease. And now we have data that shows that it actually improves cure rates in early stage disease. So this is going to be another major sort of new development that will come to the clinic um, later this year and definitely early next year. 
So does that mean that patients who are taking this endocrine therapy, uh, this pill that people take for breast cancer for five years and now for 10 years, might be getting another pill to take uh, as part of that? Yes. And so, you know, that is certainly, I think, when we talk on this show and we do a lot about personalized medicine and targeted therapies, it seems to me that that was probably one of the earliest targeted therapies was really targeting the estrogen receptor. But many patients want to know, will they still need chemotherapy? If their cancer is an estrogen receptor positive cancer, Are there a subset of patients in whom you would still offer chemotherapy in addition? And how do you make those decisions? So a few years ago, this used to be a constant topic of discussion among physicians and and part of the the multidisciplinary tumor board discussions. But um, thanks for God, in the past few years, we actually have molecular tests that make this discussion and decision much more objective than the subjective feeling of the, of the physician. So there are a number of molecular tests that can be performed on the resected tumor tissue or on a biopsy of the cancer that, that um, establish a diagnosis, which could help to define to what extent a particular patient would uh, benefit from adjuvant chemotherapy in addition to the hormonal therapy. So these tests have various commercial names and they are uh, provided by companies such as uh, Genomic Health or Oncotype DX Recurrent Score or Mama Print or ProSigma Assay. They all um, been validated for the same purpose, that they can define the ER positive or estrogen receptor positive um, patient population that benefits from adjuvant chemotherapy. So using these tests, we also learn that actually the majority of the the estrogen receptor positive patients do not need chemotherapy. But if the assay predicts that they do need chemotherapy, it's important that they they understand the the consequences and the the fact that this could improve cure rates. And so for for all of our patients uh, who are listening out there and Many of them may either have had breast cancer themselves or know somebody who has. Should all patients who have estrogen receptor positive cancers uh, be advocating for themselves to get one of these molecular assays? Or are these assays uh, something that uh, we will order in specific uh, patients? It's probably not the best way to do this on everybody. But um, rather in patients where the, the question whether chemotherapy could help or not is, is uncertain, there are clinical situations where a physician can quite uh, confidently um, feel that the chemotherapy wouldn't be helpful or would be necessary. So clearly patients have a very large tumor with multiple lymph nodes involved, um, it would be risky to avoid chemotherapy, regardless of the assay results, because even with this, a small chance or a small relative improvement could translate into a significant number of patients who benefit when the risk is very high. And the flip side of this, there are very small, very low grade or grade one tumors, which are less than a centimeter. There is no lymph node involvement where it's also clear that the added benefit from chemotherapy could only be very, very small because the chance of cure with surgery alone plus with hormonal therapy is already very high. So we we tend to use these tests in in sort of this middle ground setting when the risk for a recurrence is neither very low nor very high. 
Exactly. Uh, so now to, to move to the other kind of types of breast cancer and other types of therapy, you had mentioned this other receptor, HER2, and the fact that we have targeted therapies for this as well that are, are very efficacious. Talk a little bit more about that. So HER2-positive breast cancer has become the poster child of, of our success in, in breast cancer treatment. Um, this came about by the discovery of, of uh, antibodies and drugs that block the, the effect of, of this HER2 signaling that the HER2-amplified breast cancers uh, possess about 10, 15 years ago. And now we have at least four or five different HER2-targeted therapies that can be combined with standard-of-care hormonal therapy or chemotherapy, if chemotherapy is needed, which improves the efficacy of these more conventional treatment modalities, leading to very, very high rates of, uh, of cure um, and avoiding recurrences in, in HER2-positive disease. And so how, how do patients kind of decide uh, with their doctor about which of those HER2 therapies is optimal? So trastuzumab or Herceptin is... Um, is always part of the, the therapy of HER2-positive patients, either combined with chemotherapy and following uh, the completion of chemotherapy to complete one year on this particular drug, the Herceptin. Um, but also, we very often add another drug called pertuzumab, which increases the efficacy of trastuzumab when combined with chemotherapy, but also with hormonal therapy. Um, we also learn that the strategy also matters how we sequence the different types of treatments that someone needs to ensure or maximize the chance of cure. So clearly, patients, we need surgery. We also need these systemic therapies that get to every part of the body with the goal of, of eradicating micrometastatic cancer cells or cancer cells that have left the breast and hide somewhere in the body um, before, before the surgeon could remove the, the tumor. Um, so it turns out that for HER2-positive disease, uh, probably the most um, effective strategy is to start with a systemic therapy, oftentimes with chemotherapy, because by, by uh, following this strategy, one could assess how effective the treatment was um, at the time of the surgery. And up to 60, 70, or even 80% of the time, patients may have no cancer left in their breast by the time they finish their preoperative chemotherapy with the HER2-targeted uh, regimen. And those patients do really well. But importantly, for, for those patients whose cancer <clears throat> survives, at least to some extent, the preoperative treatment, we have plan B or backup options that have been shown to improve their survival. And these are also HER2-targeted drugs, but with, with some extra strengths added to them, um, implying that there is a, an additional chemotherapy component attached to the HER2 antibody or the anti-HER2 antibody. So, so uh, one question that patients may ask is, why not give them the supercharged uh, anti-HER2 therapy, the backup drug, up front? That's a very good question. And we, in fact, tried that. So it just turns out that the, the supercharged HER2-targeted antibody is still not as good as the, the chemotherapy plus Herceptin plus pertuzumab together. In other words, this pathological complete eradication of the cancer is a little less if you just do, use one drug, the supercharged Herceptin, which uh, is called Godzilla or TDM1. So that's the reason why, but, it, but we also know that it works 
even on cancer cells that, that survived the more sort of aggressive initial therapy. Yeah. So that's the main reason why it's sequenced this way. And, and so the final kind of category of, of patients are, are ones that really don't express uh, estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor. So endocrine therapies are not particularly effective. Uh, they don't have uh, a HER2 positive cancer. So uh, these anti-HER2 agents aren't particularly effective. And, and that's really this triple negative breast cancer class. So what's your approach there? So in triple negative disease, particularly for early stage patients, which is about 90% of all newly diagnosed triple negative breast cancers are, are early stage, stage one, stage two, stage three disease. We haven't really had any major breakthroughs for about 20 years um, or until literally last year and earlier this year, when a number of clinical trials have shown that um, the efficacy of chemotherapy could be increased by including immune checkpoint inhibitors. So the immune checkpoint inhibitors are a new class of drugs which sort of stimulate or rev up the anti-cancer immune response. And they have been shown to be highly effective in some very difficult to treat cancers like lung cancer, melanoma. And now we have evidence that they also work in early stage triple negative disease and also in combination with chemotherapy, they have shown to, to prolong the life of patients with advanced or stage four triple negative disease. So these are the, the, the most important recent advances in the management of triple negative disease. Dr. Lyaush Pustai is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.